So should I sit down or stand up? <laughs> <laughs> what do people do? What Whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how angry they are. Either. How angry? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I should start out sitting down. And I'll write <laughs> so, so this is a paper about how you could possibly have probabilities in a deterministic world. Uh, not specifically addressed to statistical mechanical probabilities, but uh, I always thought that there was that answer you give to this question should apply to statistical mechanical probabilities and coin tossing probabilities and whatever. Um, and it's also um, there's a there's a kind of a um, subtext which I, I think I'll emphasise talking about the paper today uh, about what gives these probabilities their explanatory power. So connected up to the statistical explanation side of the seminar. So I thought um, I'd start out with a few words on um, two different ways of thinking about this problem. And one I think is the way that, that is probably the official approach or the unofficial official approach in the seminar, which is centered to look to... There isn't an official approach. It's to look to physics and, I, I guess, in some sense, the metaphysical side of philosophy and see what kinds of materials are out there to actually build uh, the probabilities that science seems to be saying are out there. Um, but another kind of approach, which I guess is more my style, is to start out uh, not with, with our best scientific knowledge, but uh, uh, what's in the head to see what kinds of things we seem to be uh, presupposing are out there when we talk about probabilities, physical probabilities, and we talk when we use them to explain things, and to figure out what our commitments are uh, in talking about the stuff and then using the stuff to explain, uh, and then turning around and seeing whether there's enough of the, that stuff out there to actually vindicate the practice. So these are two two approaches that are supposed to meet in the middle. Uh, drilling the tunnel through the mountain from both sides. I don't see a, a great uh, uh, disconnect here, but uh, the, they, they look somewhat different. So um, I'm more concerned with what people actually take to be explanatory, uh, regardless of whether they're right or wrong in some sense that the, the world offers up such kinds of things. And uh, also I'm starting out with these simple kinds of examples. Uh, so in, in this paper, I think, is it coin tossing or spinning a wheel of fortune? Spinning a wheel of fortune. Okay, because it's, it's the same picture either way. <laughs> That's just the cover story. Um, uh, that are, in some sense, presumably the kinds of cases that uh, we all got started with back in the day before anyone really started thinking about entropy and so on. Um, but there's a sense in which when, when people did start thinking about statistical mechanics about entropy, just about kinetic theory, there was already seemed to be a very, uh, uh, it seemed to be quite natural to carry over these, these older ways of thinking about probability in the universe and just to start applying them. Uh, uh, there was already a pre-existing practice of thinking about physical probability. Of course, the mathematic, mathematics of probability had been, uh, first of all, built on thinking about gambling devices and then uh, later on thinking about um, measurement errors in astronomy and so on. But this kind of thinking seemed to be transferred over very naturally into thinking about molecules bouncing off one another and then uh, more abstract kinds of thoughts about the same material. So, so my, I go into this pretty optimistic 
that it will all ultimately fit together and it will turn out that we won't have to um, abandon huge chunks of our pre-existing conception of the way the world works. You're going to say something about entropy? No. <laughs> I'll stop before I get there. Can, can, I, can I actually, so let me interview, so let me just, there are two issues that strike me as being a little different and maybe they're connected mm. in your mind that I just want to talk about. <laughs> um, one is the thing you started with, do you start with the physics or do you start with something, what's in people's heads and what they take themselves to be doing? Yeah. The other is, uh, do you start with gambling devices? Yeah. <laughs> and the the gambling devices one well raises concerns because they're very special right they're systems designed to have certain symmetries in them mm -hmm. and the symmetries are really important to understand how people reasoned about assigning probabilities mm -hmm. to dice throw and, and so on um, and it's not quite clear what the analogy of that appeal to symmetries would be in the more general case we're worried about. Um, but that looks like a different issue to me, in other words, than, than the first one. Right. So, so the, well, but they're connected, yep. of course. So the, once you decide to start with the sort of the, what seems close at hand probabilistically, there's a question of more specifically what to start with. Right. And by starting with gambling devices, um, there is the risk that they are these special kinds of things that introduce a certain kind of probability into the world in a way that's completely different from all of our other probabilistic thinking about the chances of getting hit by buses or right. uh, uh, eaten by leopards or something right, like that. Or raining in the fall or things like right. that. Right. Yeah. So that's, it's just a, um, it's, I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about how they might all be similar, but there's, I don't think there's any way to see in advance that it's going to work out. Okay. But uh, one, and one, what I thought I would emphasize today, uh, uh, what to say about initial conditions does have some, is, is the sort of, the kind of thing that might be carried over even if it turns out that the gambling devices themselves are special in ways that uh, other kinds of probabilistic things are not. But again, it's, it's really a matter of finding a place to start and start digging and seeing where you come out. Um, no guarantees in advance that it's going to be turn out to be the right place to start digging. So, um, so I begin with the case of spinning the wheel of fortune, uh, which is just this uh, wheel alternating red and black sections. You spin the wheel, it comes to rest. There's a pointer. The pointer is either pointing to a black or a red section. When it stops spinning, uh, you either get a red or a black outcome. Uh, one reason to start with this, apart from the fact that these kinds of setups were, were so important historically in, in building up the mathematics of probability, uh, is, is that uh, these kinds of setups are also the starting place for an approach to thinking about probability, which has a lot in common with Tim's paper that I, you talked about a few weeks ago, where you have the quincunx, the Galton board, where the ball is bouncing down the nails. Uh, and so on. Um, an approach to thinking about how physical probability called the method of arbitrary functions. So that's basically my starting point here is thinking about the method of arbitrary functions. Uh, thinking about what it might get you 
when people first introduced it, it wasn't clear what it was supposed to get you. Uh, uh, what you would need to add to it to actually get you something as philosophically interesting as a story about where deterministic probabilities come from and how they can be explanatory. So, um, I'm leaping to my feet, not out of anger, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, in the most simple conception of how the the physics of a setup like this works, uh, there's just a single variable that determines the outcome. The spin speed, the... I call it... Uh, and imagine everything else being fixed as it, of course, is not really completely fixed. Then you just spin the thing and uh, the value of V determines exactly what what result you're going to get whether it comes to rest with the red or the black being indicated. So if you're going to draw the the function that maps values of V onto outcomes, uh, it's going to have this, this shape that's reproduced in the paper I mean, of course, it could be one of many different shapes, but they all have this characteristic pattern to them of um, uh, very tightly spaced intervals of red and black uh, uh, alternating so that any two neighboring intervals are almost exactly the same width. Okay, so um, this is... Do it for a while and then stop. So the idea here is this is just a function that maps to one for values of V that give you red and zero for values that give you black. Okay. Uh, When people first started thinking about these devices in this way, uh, they drew these pictures, uh, and then they pointed out that uh, uh, for almost any probability distribution over V, you're going to get a probability of about one-half for red. So this seemed in some way to illuminate the fact that the probability of red was one half. It was not clear in everyone's writing exactly how it was supposed to be eliminated. But the the thought is, as long as as the function is reasonably smooth in the sense that it doesn't gyrate back and forth, there's another picture in the paper to show you what that would look like, then at least roughly the the area of this probability density over V that corresponds to red values is going to be one half. Okay. So I'm going to go on and on and on about this because it's all laid out in the paper. Is that that's something I can just take for granted? Okay. So I think this strikes everyone who thinks about it as a as a very interesting observation, but it's unclear uh, exactly what to make of it. Uh, uh, and one reason it's unclear is because it uh, seems to presume in its setup that there is some kind of probability distribution over V, over the initial speed. Um, uh, and so uh, this doesn't seem to be a device for getting new probability into the world. It's just a device for sort of taking various probability and, 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 um, and regularizing it. In fact, you might think this is the whole point of these, these um, gambling devices is to eliminate the various differences that various croupiers have when they spin the wheel. So the fact that one person is going to spin the wheel or toss the coin or roll the die a little bit differently from someone else and, 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 and output uh, very regular probabilities uh, no matter what. If that's all there is to it, then this really isn't very philosophically interesting. It's interesting to people in the gaming industry and uh, 
people are playing other kinds of games and so on, but, but there's not much more to say. But uh, people, um, so I think, I think the first person to, to talk about the method of arbitrary functions was um, uh, von Kries, who was a student of Helmholtz. So late 19th century, early, early 20th century, um, mainly worked on vision, but also on, wrote a book about the foundations of probability. Uh, Poincaré was another person who talked about this. Uh, got picked up by Reichenbach for a while. Um, but it seems to have been picked up and then kind of uh, fizzled out as, as, a, as a, uh, a way of thinking about probability that really has, ultimately has anything very important to say. Michael, say, say, more, say more about what it is exactly that got picked up and, and fizzled out. Is, is there a claim? Is there a proposition? Or is it just a proposition that this picture is interesting and informative in a, in a way to be specified further at some later point? Well, it seems often to have been the latter. I don't okay, okay. Von Trees really, really thought, uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about what he thought this in a moment, that that you could understand what probability was by thinking about this picture. But when other right. people have picked it up, that's been less less true. So mm-hmm. in Poincaré, for example, um, well, let's, uh, let me, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the way Poincaré used it. Always, um, typically, um, either in very formal writing on the mathematics of probability or very informal writing in popular philosophy of science, never in the sweet spot in between where he would be forced to answer these <laughs> questions. But in these early things, von Kreis von Kreis, were there was their focus on the really philosophical question of what probability really is or the more practical question? Why we should expect a, a roulette wheel to behave the way it does with an answer being like this. So I think, I think my, my, uh, that a part of what was being urged is that probability is, a, a respect, is objective enough to be a respectable notion in science. So that stops a little bit short of saying, here are the metaphysics of physical probability. But it, it goes beyond just the transformation of varying probability distributions into specific probabilities. It was somewhere in between. So there's a suggestion, and this is, I guess, what gets people interested in this idea, that, that there's a, there is a, a metaphysics of probability in here somewhere. There's a complete story about how a world that is totally deterministic could nevertheless come to have probabilities in it. The focus of the people, there are different focuses you might have for that. One is single case probability. Mm. Right, like fifty percent for this coin, coin toss, mm. whatever, um, and that raises, in a very acute way, the significance of this arbitrary function. Even if it's arbitrary, it's not quite mm. clear what it is. Um, and they might have thought, well, gee, that that what I what I really my target here is to explain why it's correct to say, you know, when I do this particular event, right? Mm. I want to assign it this part. The other possibility, which connects up with the, what we saw Maxwell and Boltzmann do, mm. is that the target of explanation is rather frequencies, in which case it looks rather different. You know, if you say, as I said, if you just say, look, mm. the actual uh, set of initial conditions 
for lots of these things are statistically independent, right? The main assumption is a statistical independence. They're statistically independent of your, of your, of your graph here, right? And if you have that, then you have certain expectations for, for the long-term frequencies. Was there, I mean, the people you were looking at, did they seem to be focused, or is it just indeterminate whether they were focused on single case chances or focused on some other? So that at, at one point, Poincaré does a, do a, a version of this that must be single case, when he's talking about the, the probability that the, um, the orbits of the planets would all be on the same plane. Uh, so that seems to be a kind of a, a single case use. So he talks about, suppose that they were all... I forget exactly how. It's, all of this stuff is extremely informal and extremely brief, so it's probably even a mistake to try to philosophically reconstruct exactly what's going on. But the, applica the intended application seemed to be to a single case. But of course, uh, it can also be to, to the frequencies. Maybe we should... The, the main thought here is why do we keep getting almost exactly a half red and a half black? Right. But um, it's probably, again, probably a mistake to try and pin it down too exactly unless you really wanted to do some involved scholarly exegesis with okay. perhaps no determinate answer at the end. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't myself read von Kries because it's never been translated from German. But um, someone I know uh, uh, who is German says that even in the German it's still a bit difficult to pin down exactly what's going on. So. <laughs> but here's, here's, here's uh, the, the, way that, the way that this method got its name um, you can see in, in Poincaré's I, it was maybe Poincaré who gave it the name. <coughs> well, he certainly calls it. He talks about arbitrary functions. He says, he says, look, if if you imagine in the limit as you spin the wheel faster and faster, or as the red and black sections get narrower and narrower, uh, the smoothness condition on the initial condition distribution that you require, uh, well, you know, strictly speaking, require, but that is sufficient to give you a probability of one half for red. Um, becomes so weak that uh, in the end uh, all that's necessary is that the uh, distribution be expressible as some probability density. So an arbitrary probability density over the value of V will in the limit give you a probability for red of one half. And that's where the, the arbitrary comes in in arbitrary functions. So natural philosopher's reaction to that is... is but we want to understand the probabilities we get in the real world where there aren't. Uh, uh, the wheel is not spun infinitely fast and the sections are not infinitely thin. Uh, Sorry, so just a, a, a just brief question. Um, in the, you're taking the idealized case where every, you know, it's, it's a fair wheel, so the half is the, sort of the limiting case. That's right. Uh, suppose it wasn't and there was some other target sort of natural frequency for it. That doesn't change any of the limiting arguments, does it? No. So the, uh, maybe I could, I could say a little bit more about the structure of this. So the, no, I don't want, I'm just curious, if, I mean, like, if it was 75% was the natural frequency, that doesn't change any of the argument in the, in the limit. So suppose that for every four sections on the wheel, three are red and one is black. Well, the red sections are three times as large as the black section. That's one way to do it, yeah. Yeah, that would be... So then... Then these these red sections would be fatter. They would take up almost. So I was exactly actually thinking of yeah. I can see that case. I was worried about it where the actual pieces are still uniform. The segments are uniform. These little breaks under the red sections. But there's some sort of physical dis discrepancy in the wheel. 
that leads to a not not 50 percent. Let's say it's extreme. Let's say it's 80 percent. Mm. That doesn't change any of the sort of limiting argument, does it? No, because in a, 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 if it's done that way, I mean, there are there are ways you could set up the wheel so you don't get anything that looks like this at all. But if it's done that way, you'll still get still this something. sort of pattern. The, the key thing here really is that for any small, take any pair of neighboring chunks, and the the ratio of red to black is the same. So if you have a, a, a density that's about equal over any small area, then then the total contribution to the probability is going to be proportional to this ratio of red to black uh, over any small section. So the sum it all up, and it's going to be just that same ratio. So the, the important properties here are that it alternates back and forth very quickly. So you're just talking about small small neighboring red and black areas just take a very small amount of space and second that it's the same ratio of red to black in each one of those so I call this when you have this property I call it micro constancy because you have this constant ratio over micro sized chunks of the I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm sorry to slow, slow you down but I, in, you could take the situation I described and map it to the situation you described where the wheel is naturally 50-50 but you relabel the 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 bins so that you know more of them are red than black to get whatever frequency you need. But if that's extreme, I don't see how in the limit you get that result. What if it's like 99%? What if the mapping requires you to have 99% of the, the slices being red? Mm -hmm. um, so over an interval, you're going to say you require that like 1% of that interval is black and 99% is, that's is right. red. But then is the argument that in the limit that still is smooth enough, any curve is smooth enough that that that'll hold? Right. So if in the limit, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, in the limit. But why, but why, yeah, but why not? What's what's the? I was just bothered by the extreme the case. You know, the, the the limit sort of swamps everything. Swamps even everything if you're sort of some huge. Night. Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, if you had a wheel which is pathological in, in the kind of way you have in mind, it really wouldn't be a very good roulette wheel. It wouldn't give you systematic. If it gives systematic probabilities at all, given that people can spin things at different speeds and so on and so forth, it still gives systematic probabilities. Right. That has to be the mechanism. <coughs> okay. So, so as long as you get this, as long as this, there's a number which is the ratio of red to black, and that number is the same in each of these small intervals, then in the limit, you will get that as the probability for any density whatsoever. Plus, you can have probability distributions that don't have a density. So even this, this, the arbitrariness is a little bit, in fact, strained here. It's not for an arbitrary probability distribution that you get 50-50 in this case. It's for an arbitrary probability distribution that has a density, an arbitrary, absolutely continuous probability distribution in the jargon. But it can I mean, it, and it's just tight, common. Mm -hmm. in, in this particular case, the limit as V goes to infinity just isn't a limit you want to look at at all. God knows what happens. The thing burns up right. and trying to <laughs> fall it flies off on the ceiling, right? I mean, it's, it's not, not a good... <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing that's giving you the function is the microdynamics. And you can yeah. ask a perfectly good question, what's the mic what happens to the microdynamics as V goes to infinity? But that is going to give you 
no information mm -hmm. relevant to the case you're interested in. What Clark Crane, these guys were thinking was, it's surely the case if you do it real slow, you don't get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're very quickly at the limit. <laughs> I think Poincaré is just, maybe you can think of Poincaré as describing the properties of the mathematical model, of the phys these physical considerations are just not present. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, then the relevance of what he's doing was a little The operation is it works to be as large. The question is how large, but if, if you get an explanation for when you take the limit, things seem okay, so you say, ah, be is large enough. It's fine. And that's the real world. It's not large enough, it doesn't work. So it's really, there's three complaints about going to the limit. One is that it doesn't make physical sense. One is that we're not doing it anyway, so even if it did make physical sense, it would be irrelevant. And the, the third one is that going to the limit gets you... Uh, uh, a definite probability for an arbitrary probability density, but not for an arbitrary probability distribution. So there's still a way the world's probabilities could be that would not get you the <coughs> the probability of one half. So this, it's not really the if you had a result that said whatever way the world turns out, the probability of red is a half. This would be pretty much you would be done here. You would have a a story about where the probability of red came from. But it's not the case that you have such a story. You, you get tantalizingly far down the path and then uh, you have to stop. So, uh, and then maybe this is the, way, the reason this never caught on in philosophy. When Reichenbach did this, by the way, he was um, in his neo-Kantian phase. This is in his doctoral dissertation. I'm one of the three people who have read it. <laughs> uh, so it's the the necessity of probabilities for uh, empirical knowledge, because probabilities are necessary to have the statistical techniques we need to uh, 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 have knowledge in a world where no measurement is perfect, um, that establishes, that, that, that creates the need for probabilities. So there's a kind of transcendental argument for the existence of these probabilities, because they're necessary for empirical knowledge. But I won't dwell on that. That's a nice historical point. Everyone always says that the logical positivists came from neo-Kantianism, so it's, it's good to have something you can point to and say, look, it's a logical empiricist being neo-Kantian. <laughs> in, in a way that you would, everyone would recognize, it's just a straight-out Kantian move. Okay, what are the, so what, are the, what, what else do we make of this? I think the, the, um, the right way to go is to, is to um, stop imagining there's a probability distribution over V at all. Maybe in some cases there is, but to look for ways that you could use this dynamical structure here to generate probabilities uh, without having probabilities as input. Okay. So I think this, is, as I understand it, uh, this is what von Kreese, in fact, suggested. In fact, what von Kreese suggested could be seen as, as, as roughly along the same lines as Tim's typicality move uh, in statistical mechanics. So the thought is this. Suppose you have, suppose you have a physics that looks like this. Imagine you uh, run the experiment a hundred times. So a hundred times you spin the wheel okay, with a hundred separate initial spin speeds. Uh, then look at the space of possible sets of spin speeds. So these will be 100 tuples of spin speeds. Uh, Almost every, no, it's just a hundred, it's not almost every in the mathematical sense, just in the, in the informal sense. Almost every one of those 100 tuples uh, will give you a uh, sequence of outcomes that is where the frequency of red is about one half. 
uh, and in fact a sequence that looks disordered in the right sort of way we'll be inclined to say that the uh, any two spins of the wheel are independent so the sequence will pass statistical tests for independence okay. so let's uh, uh, look at the look at the um, uh, the structure of the of the the space over all the possible initial conditions and you'll see that the, uh, uh, this property of the distribution of, uh, of initial conditions you need to get, let's say, let's just, I'll just focus on frequency, a frequency of one half. Uh, this property of smoothness is typical in the sense that uh, most, of the, most of the possible initial conditions will have that property. Now this is assuming we have some way of talking about the smoothness of a discrete set. Um, and there are ways to do that. Uh, I won't dwell on it unless you want me to. Okay. So, uh, I, I think the, the, the way forward for using this arbitrary functions style thinking is to actually get rid of the arbitrary functions. Therefore, possibly, um, uh, requiring a new name for what's going on here. <laughs> uh, and to think in terms of something like typicality instead. What I want to, I'll spend the rest of the time talking about um, uh, what you might need to uh, add to this notion of typicality to really convince people that it's uh, all along what they've been wanting and deepest down in their hearts. Okay, so this will be a, a kind of a, I suppose, a friendly amendment to the typicality style move. You, you should obviously refer to this theory using a glyph and then call it the theory previously known as the theory of learning. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, um, yes, I guess it still doesn't have a new name. Like I said, my, my name for this dynamical property, which is really what you hang on to and what does all the work, is microconstancy. So, so I call these the probabilities you get out of this micro-constant probabilities, and that's the closest that you have to a name here. Yeah. But it's not as it doesn't. Michael, but I just want to make sure I see where we are yeah. in the argument. So, before yeah. there was a worry that this kind of mechanism, that looking at this kind of picture, isn't a isn't a way of saying how probabilities get into the world in the first place, but just a way of translating one distribution into another, right. into, or, 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 or translating a wide variety of distributions into another, making them all converge on, on one distribution of 50% red, 50% black. Um, um, now we're talking about what you're calling typical distributions of initial conditions. Of course, there are sets that are atypical mm. and and so I don't know if we're going to want to call it a probability distribution but we're going to want to we're, in order to get these frequencies into the world mm. we're going to want we're going to want an account of why we don't need to worry about the occurrence of the ones that are right. atypical right. so we've still got the, 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 there's still a there's still a bill to be paid here yeah. yes yeah, um, okay. so that the, the aim is to pay that bill. Good, 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 okay, good. So that, that is in some sense, although the names have changed, in some logical sense we're at a place similar to where we were before. There's still something that's got to be input in the beginning 
A few minutes ago, we were calling it a probability distribution over velocities. Now we're calling it something like a license to neglect the atypical distributions or something like that. But in a logical sense, we're in a similar place, right? That is, you were saying, okay, let's stop talking about arbitrary functions and talk about typicality mm. as though that represented some kind of a response to the worry that, we're, that there's something we had to input in the beginning. Well, I see it rather as taking a different path. Okay. So two, path, two paths to take. One is to, is to focus on, is, is to assume that the way forward is to say something satisfying about the probability distribution of right. the initial condition. Right. But that's difficult. The, that seems to be what the notion of arbitrariness is doing. Whatever the distribution is, it, it's, it's right. the same. Right. You get the one-half probability, but that's right. just not true. Right. Right. So the other way to go is to is is to is to say neglect certain of these, and then we're going to well, need to be told a story later about why we're not allowed to neglect. What you said is true, but the way you put it was rather. <laughs> I mean, that logical similarity. Is, yeah. Of course, it's going to be the case whenever you've, even whenever you've made real progress and realized that um, what seemed like something really puzzling is now reduces to something which I still is not totally justified, but is I'm really in a different place. That's a, that's a very common situation. It's almost always a situation. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm what, I, I, I guess I, I, what I wanted to make sure I understood properly was we're not in a different place in terms of the strictly logical structure of the situation. Sounds like we still right, need so a new there's no, there's no definition, there's no final metaphysics of probability. I mean, right. could, so there could be one very quickly if you, if you say, okay, there's something very satisfying about the thought that, that um, the typical set of initial conditions has the properties... Uh, we need to. And there's something to, very satisfying in the thought that most about smooth, one half black, one half red. There's something similarly no, satisfying I, I in the thought that yeah. most smooth functions. I intend to say to say this with exactly that tone of voice. Okay. <laughs> so there's something good. There's something very. Sa there's something satisfying yes. about this. Yes. But why is it satisfying? Right. That's the, the right. So the the project is to is to figure out what's satisfying okay. us about okay. it. So this is where I think of myself as going into the head. Okay. Okay. And and then. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I but mean, you could at this, well, maybe I don't need to say this. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I again, also sort of, I mean, the way David describes the situation in terms of inputs is a certain way of thinking about the problem. And it's a way of thinking about the problem that, of course, immediately produces a kind of regress. You say, oh, in order to get this gadget to work, I need yeah. this input, but where does that input come from? Well, have I really made any? There's another way of thinking about it that it's the, the issue, and now I'm just repeating things I've said forever, but let me repeat them one more time. That the, to, to reorient the way you think about it, it's not an issue about inputs, right? You ask the frequencies, the actual frequencies are just given to us by the world, okay? That's not an input, right? That's, that's what we're looking at. It's that are you in a certain situation in, in some cases where you think those frequencies have been adequately accounted for? Which is a different thing than saying, for example, oh, here's an input that would lead you to expect, or that, a, that as it were, causally produces them or something like that. But are, are there certain cases where you feel like if the actual frequencies in the world have certain character and this is what's going on, then they're adequately accounted for, right? Yeah, let me use that, let me use that as a framework. So let's yeah. say, let's forget about where probabilities come from for a moment and just ask the question how this 
how seeing that the dynamics has this form uh, will help us to understand the frequencies, to explain them, uh, or even just to predict them. But what you mean by the dynamics of the form is the sawtooth. The microcosm. Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's the form of the dynamics. Okay. Yeah, right. the right. form of the dynamics. Right. Dynamics. No, no, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean to criticize the wording. I just meant I, I wanted to understand which... which that, that is, the curve isn't what we're calling part of the form of the dynamics. It's right, the sawtooth right. that's the form of the dynamics. Right. The right. curve, in fact, right. is, is being, has been jettisoned. Right, right. Um, uh, so... So let me, uh, of course, a question that comes up is, is um, uh, uh, comes from the, the measure relativity of the notion of typicality. And we say most, most sets of initial conditions have this probability uh, uh, property. I guess as long as you're dealing with a finite set, like a hundred, you don't have to worry about, about that so much. But um, um, clearly you don't want to stop there. But I, I'll, I'll put that aside. So, but even, I, I even if you did stop there, that. even if you did stop there, you could ask, how come all the runs weren't like this? You know. Yeah. Um, um, so it's not it's not it, it's it, it's not a special worry that comes up just in the in the continuous case or in the infinite case. I'm, it's a, you, you, it's so not that you were denying that. I'm sorry. So somebody says, somebody says, well, why did why did we get about a half red right. and a half black? Right. And you say to them, well, look, look, look at this. When you see what the dynamics is, you realize that um, almost any of the possible initial conditions for this set of trials right. would have produced that. But, then, but then you have some, you know, you have some asshole who says, uh, <laughs> but what about the initial conditions that were one, one spin was here, and the next one was here, and the next one was here, and the next one was there? That doesn't come half, half, you know, half red and half black. So you can say, oh, you can neglect those. And, is and, and the guy says, well, not why? Okay. Maybe neglect isn't the right word, but somehow seeing that seeing that most of the conditions are like this is somehow satisfying. But why? I mean, it could be so. It could be just a, a primitive psychological compulsion that we have. We expect things to be typical, despite everything that's happened so far. Uh-huh. We just. But um, what a, as you as you know from this paper, I want to look a little bit deeper into it and and try to figure out, say, in the case of something like spinning the wheel of fortune. Uh, uh, why this would be. So, uh, in particular, um, uh, to ask, what, what are the conditions under which, first of all, you will get um, a, uh, uh, a typical frequencies? Right. And the, ans- the answer is, of course, well, the most obvious answer is uh, when, when it's the case that initial conditions for these things usually are typical. Um, and the other, que- other, other question I want to ask, though, going into explanation, is um, why, why does it somehow seem to explain, uh, insofar as it does, uh, what we get when I say, oh, well, you see, uh, almost every set of initial conditions would give this result. Now, it's re- the natural thing to do is to fall back on probability again and say, well, it must be that the, the initial conditions are at least roughly equally probable or at least that the probability distribution over initial conditions is not all over the place. It's smooth enough. But that's the, that, of course, is the move that I'm renouncing. Here. Right, right. Right, so right. It's, uh, uh, maybe it's something else. Um, so the, 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 the move 
I make in the paper is, is to claim that what's satisfying in these cases uh, uh, about the typicality, pointing out the typicality here, is that we think that in these cases there will be a tendency for the initial conditions to be typical, okay, in some sense. So it's not, doesn't, so taking one step beyond typicality itself, there's the idea that there's a tendency for these things to be typical in that way. And the challenge is to make sense of that in a way that doesn't uh, appeal to yet more probabilities. And not the typicality either. Yeah, not the typicality either. But yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Right. When, when you say there's a tendency well, for we'll conditions see. to be typical, is that supposed to be understood as a, as a claim that's distinct from a claim like it's typical for the conditions to be typical? Yes. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> but really, I think it'd be useful to sort of narrow down the focus again uh, a little bit from typicality to um, uh, the particular property of smoothness. So lots and lots of trials on the Wheel of Fortune. Um, take all those trials, um, put them in bins. What you'll get is a, a, a kind of, in effect, the statistics of that particular finite, long, finite run of trials will be pretty smooth in the sense that if you, uh, let's, one way to put it is you draw a line that, uh, that, that represents the distribution of actual, the actual frequencies of these initial spin speeds, and it has the smoothness property. And you can be kind of savvy about drawing this line so you don't get into problems where, where uh, you draw some crazy, uh, crazy line that doesn't, doesn't guarantee that you'll get the frequency you want. So there's, some, there's, a, there's a sort of sense of statistical smoothness such that it seems that typically, and I'm talking just about frequency here, typically the initial conditions will have this statistical, I should say usually, usually the statistical conditions will have this statistical smoothness. The statistical smoothness is sufficient for getting a frequency of roughly one half or whatever for red. Uh, and furthermore, so this means like you just you draw you draw the straightest line. You make the graph by drawing pretty straight lines between the points. That would be one way to define right. it. I right. mean, there's a more there's a more careful way to define it uh -huh. that, that will ensure that the sufficiency right. claim right. uh, is is absolute. But it, it can't go wrong. So I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna dwell no, on I'm that. No, I'm sorry. Okay. But okay. I'm actually, I'm a bit I'm a bit confused about what the what, what the condition you have in mind is. So mm -hmm. suppose for a minute I have this v space, mm -hmm. and suppose for a minute, uh, imagine it was nice and we were projecting your bars on mm -hmm. the graph, right, mm -hmm. that are given by the dynamics. Mm -hmm. And suppose I turn off the projector, mm -hmm. yes, so you don't know where the bars are anymore. And now I just give you a bunch of dots. Mm -hmm. So here are the initial, here are the initial v's that were used in this hundred set of spins. Mm -hmm. Is your, the sense of that being in an intuitive sense smooth? one you could actually tell just by looking at their distribution and independently of of where the bars are? No, I think that the, the, the definition of smoothness that, that guarantees frequencies has to take into account. So, uh, for example, first that, just the width of the, the bars. The coarse graining, the scale of the coarse graining to define these the smoothness, the smooth approximation is got to be order set by the scale of the bars here. Right. Okay. 
So let's, it's probably, probably a good idea to put this, to sort of store this worry for later. Because uh, it, it's just going to be much easier to talk about statistical smoothness as though it's some, some sort of single property that you can think about independently of the application. Okay. Even though it, it may not be. Uh, so, where am I up to? So, there, it, it seems to be we, we live in a world where, in fact, these conditions seem to be distributed in a statistically smooth way. But it also seems to be the case, uh, and this, is, this I think is part of the explanation for why uh, invoking typicality or something like that is explanatory, it also seems to be the case that uh, we think of there as being a kind of a tendency to smoothness. Okay, so it's not just a fluke. A tendency to statistical smoothness. Okay. And I think if you, if that's a well-founded belief, uh, then, well, no, let me put it a slightly different way. I think seeing that there is this tendency is what makes it so satisfying to realize that all you need is smoothness. Okay. So once you realize that all you need is smoothness, combine that with your uh, pre-existing belief that there's generally a tendency to smoothness, and then you understand why the frequency is so often one half. Okay. Notice that this tendency is you uh, buried in here is your, an acknowledgement that the tendency is is uh, not a uh, exceptionalist tendency. Okay. And this is the this is why I, I wouldn't say that it's exactly true that you neglect. Uh, the unusual distributions, because they do come up from time to time. Okay, so you know they're there, you just think that the, the tendency is such that they don't happen very often. Yeah, that's what I meant by neglecting them, I think. But, okay. but then, but let me just, and maybe this is premature, and then you should mm. just tell me to shut up and wait till the end of the mm. class. Um, um, but it sounds from what you just said, um, um, and this is a picture I understand, but it sounds like this tendency to smoothness certainly isn't the deductive result of the dynamics. Right. Um, so it sounds like a new a, a new principle about the way the world is that's being added to the dynamics. Well, it's not a principle because I'm going to try to figure out where it comes from. Oh, okay. Calling good. it a principle makes it sound like a good, 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 good. good. stopping point. Excellent. Good. So why do we why do what what's the nature of our belief that there's a tendency to smoothness? Right. Could be that we think there's a probability distribution over the initial conditions. Dot dot dot. Right. That road is has been relaxed. Right, right. What else could it be? So uh, step one is to think of a think of a commitment to this tendency as being a commitment to a, a big family of, of uh, uh, conditionals, mostly counterfactual conditionals um, of the sort. For example, uh, uh, if I if I were to right now spin this wheel a hundred times, then I would likely get. Uh, smooth distribution of spin speeds, okay, which is then going to be directly related to a, another counterfactual conditional. Uh, if I were to do that, I would likely get a um, <coughs> uh, about one half red outcomes. Okay, or uh, take some coin tossing examples from the paper. Uh, if holding up a Susan B. Anthony coin, if this coin had Susan Sontag on it rather than Susan B. Anthony, I would still likely have gotten, when I tossed it a hundred times, uh, a smooth distribution of spin speeds. Uh, or if the United States produced two cent coins, then when people tossed them, they would 
likely get smooth distributions of spin speeds. So the general form of this is um, if um, I'll go back to spinning if span 100 times then likely obviously that's a word to come back to smooth distribution in the statistical sense so it seems to me first of all we do in fact uh, believe these conditionals to be true okay, and that they're very closely related and maybe just equivalent to the belief in the tendency uh, uh, that if I were to spin the wheel a hundred times the distribution of spin speeds would likely be uh, uh, statistically smooth okay can, can, can you actually say I, I'm really confused about this um, and maybe it's not so this Susan B. Anthony Okay. Um, because, <laughs> because I can't figure out the relevance. Of, I mean, suppose I believe the following thing: like people flipping coins, and now you'd say, "Here's a what? What if what if Susan Sontag had been on this coin?" And I said, "You know what? I think I think people would look at the coin. They go, ah, you know, they say, what the heck is this? They drop it, right? <laughs> that the, the, the spin speed distribution in such a case would be wildly different, right? Because of." you know, the, the effect of seeing Susan Sontag on your coin. Suppose I believe that, so I reject your, I, I wholeheartedly reject so you your think counterfact. So continue, they continue spinning it, uh, uh, tossing it? Yeah, no, no, his, I, no, his counter, the, the, I understand the antecedent of his counterfactual was, suppose you flipped a Susan Sontag coin instead of a Susan B. Anthony. So suppose I, suppose I had the belief that people would flip Susan Sontag coins very differently and okay. do some fancy mm-hmm. thing. For right. whatever reason, I tell you some long song and dance about right. it. Okay. Right. Okay. It seems to me it's just irrelevant. I don't understand why that counterfactual has any bearing at all on the case I'm interested in. So that's why I'm not sure why you're invoking it as part of my, you know, what must be in the back of my mind when I think I have an explanation here. I just can't you know, I mean, I'm, there, there are lots of changes I could, you know, suppose I, I say, well, gee, what if you change the surface not by changing, you know, Susan Anthony into Susan Sontag, but I put little grooves on it or something that was aerodynamically important. And in mm-hmm. fact, if I did that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe everything would look very different. Right. I just can't see why that's a counterfactual that has any explana- explanatory bearing on the case I'm interested in. Well, think of the, think of the counterfactual as diagnosing a general tendency to smoothness in our tosses or spins. Yeah, and then it's that, the word that tendency that, that, I'm, that, that I'm not understanding. I guess when you started it, I wasn't understanding what a tendency is supposed to be. Um, mm. So, it's there's one understanding of a tendency is a, a frequentist, you know, a frequentist. Yeah. A's tend to do this just means lots of days do this. But you're giving tendencies a kind of a more robust metaphysics that I'm not sure they That's are there right. a, standard, a bit like propensities or things like it's that. It's like all of these T blank 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 Y <laughs> words. It's supposed to light a little fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So I was wondering whether that was that, that's what you're appealing to. Then it looks a little bit dicey to me. Right. So I want to, you know, continue. I want to continue on and, okay, and, and right, so try to figure out what's right, you also been replaced by likely. Right, I'm going to get to that in a moment. <laughs> but the, the idea is to, is to see what, why we think these counterfactual conditionals are true, and in some sense that's going to reveal the sources of our belief in this general tendency. Now then there may be an additional step in deciding um, what is it about this general tendency that is explanatorily relevant to some particular series of 
coin tosses. And it might turn out that, that in fact, aspects of the general tendency are irrelevant, maybe. So I just tossed this Susan B. Anthony coin. But it may, it may turn out that the, some of these counterfactuals are, are not directly explanatorily okay. relevant. But they're supposed, to be, they're supposed to be clues, as it were, to lead me on deeper into the, into the mind to find out what this commitment to a tendency really amounts to. So as long as you think that, that, that it, as long as it seems right that there's this tendency to smoothness and that it's expl- it, some aspect of it is explanatorily relevant and that these counterfactuals are closely connected to the belief in the tendency, then, then that should be enough to see that thinking more about the counterfactuals might be useful, might, might be re- revelatory. Okay, so um, again, we have the, the, the bugbear of probability comes back. Uh, so suppose what this means is that if I spun the wheel a hundred times, uh, then there would be a very high physical probability of getting a smooth distribution of spin speeds. Then it seems we would again have reached a dead end, or rather a kind of diversion that takes us onto the other branch of the road. So it would turn out that this belief in the tendency, once I dug deeper, was based in a a pre-existing commitment to a probability distribution over spin speeds, which gets me to a likelihood here. So the next move, and this is, I think this is is the point where I, I sort of um, proposing rather than arguing, uh, is that in fact there's another way to understand these counterfactuals. So one way to understand them is in fact as having uh, consequence that are just about physical probabilities. So if, I, if, if a Susan Sontag coin were manufactured, uh, the probability of heads on that coin would be one half. That's a conditional where about what the probability would be. Okay. But if that's the only kind of conditional that confound these beliefs in, in what you might call statistical tendencies, then we're, we're stuck again. So it's worth looking elsewhere. So here's my suggestion. There's another kind of counterfactual conditional that has the same form, but different truth conditions. Here what matters is not that there's... Uh, so thinking about it in terms of closest possible worlds. This is a counterfactual that would be true if in all the closest worlds where the wheel was spun a hundred times, uh, the there were a probability distribution over the spin speeds that made a statistically smooth uh, uh, distribution very likely. Okay. Here's a different way of understanding it. If I were to spin a hundred times, then in almost all the closest possible worlds where I did that, uh, I would have a smooth distribution of spin speeds, smooth statistical distribution. Okay. So now the, the likely is not a physical probability measure, but it's a kind of measure of a possible world space, whatever that is. Okay. My proposal is to go with that. Okay, so this is... I don't know that I have any independent evidence for, the, uh, uh, for this. So it is, it's just a proposal that there are such counterfactual conditionals uh, and that uh, uh, at least some of our beliefs of this form are rooted and those kind I mean at least some of our beliefs of this form are those kinds of counterfactuals okay so um, uh, what I'm saying is I I find all the closest worlds where I spin a hundred times and in most but not all of those the distribution of spins will be statistically smooth okay 
and it's whatever the reason that that's that's what diagnoses the tendency and whatever the reason is that these counterfactuals are true is is in some sense the ultimate basis for the tendency shall I keep going okay so um, why would a counterfactual like that be true uh, again I think this, this, there is a there is sort of a, a, um, a, a spark of intuition to guide you on here it, if you're at least if you're used to thinking in possible worlds terms it does seem like a reasonable thing to believe that if I uh, in all the closest worlds where I spin a hundred times uh, sorry in almost all the worlds where I spin a hundred times I'll get a smooth distribution uh, but why would I why would I believe that okay move to the semantics of 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 Counterfactual conditionals are already there. Move to the move to the to the to the uh, uh, conditions that define closeness. Okay. So closeness, the the current consensus seems to be, is uh, 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 determined in something like the following way. Maybe this isn't the ultimate story. Someone like David Lewis thought, thought there was a different ultimate story, but he thought it kind of panned out this way for these kinds of conditionals. Uh, the possible worlds I'm interested in looking at, the closest possible worlds, are the ones that have the same history as the actual world up till about the time that the antecedent occurs or slightly before. Then there's a slight deviation, a small miracle in some sense of small that occurs uh, as a result of which the antecedent comes true. So I'm just seized with the impulse to start spinning my wheel of fortune. Okay. Uh, uh, those worlds then evolve according to the actual laws of nature. So, by supposition here, just the actual deterministic laws. So what I'm doing when I'm thinking about this is I'm thinking, okay, take a world that's just like this world, but I suddenly start spinning. Uh, what would happen in such a world? I think it's pretty difficult for us to say what would happen in any particular such world. But uh, I think there is a basis for us to say, well, usually... Uh, we would get um, a smooth distribution. So the, th the things that are going to come into play here, if this works out, are um, the things that determine the identities of these closest worlds. First of all, what I call... So now, now I'm thinking about some particular conditional. If I were right now, I should have brought along the Wheel of Fortune to spin this a hundred times. Okay. Does the actual state of the world... Uh, just before I start doing all of this, there is uh, the the uh, the counterfactual spin schedule. So, I'm, and there might be many of these. Uh, one thing I could do is just start spinning it every ten seconds, or I could start spinning it every twenty seconds, or something like this. But for each such schedule that's not too crazy, there'll be a uh, pretty close possible world. Uh, and then there'll be uh, the actual laws of nature and they'll determine some fact of the matter uh, for any particular world uh, as to what will happen given the actual state and the spin schedule and the laws uh, of course not being a Laplacian demon it's pretty difficult for me to work out for any precise specification of these conditions what's going to happen but I can I can if, I, if I'm a um, have faith in the, the counterfactual way of thinking that 
there is some fact of the matter as to what will happen. So, and this may trip, because the example you gave of the skin spin schedule verbally mm. was macroscopic. Right. The, the, the way you're thinking of it, however, is it's a complete, exact, microscopic description of how the things respond. <coughs> so, so all the talk about counterfactuals isn't really doing much work here, is it? Well, these, the, what the counterfactuals do is they make certain kinds of things relevant to uh, uh, the question of why we should think there's such and such a tendency. I mean, if well, move on. Well, one thing you could be saying is that ultimately it's all going to boil down to things that are not counterfactual. I, and if that's so, that well, that's all, all I'm that's saying, what I hope. If it's a deterministic in system, and you're saying the the, the three bullet points, mm-hmm. so the deterministic system, okay, that's already specified in the laws of nature yeah. holding those fixed. The other two bullet points between them imply the exact phase point. Okay. Right. So the laws of nature and the exact initial phase point tell me what the outcome is going to be. Right. So the distribution of the outcomes will simply be a function of the distribution of what you're calling the spin schedule. Right. I mean, I haven't said a word about counterfactuals. This is just, you know, dynamical analysis. So well, somehow, you're, when well, you say there's a tendency to get certain results, what you're saying is that overwhelmingly most spin schedules do X, and now we're just back to understanding well, what that means. So... Yes, and that part of the point here is to go by way of the counterfactuals and have the counterfactuals tell you that a particular group of non-counterfactual facts are relevant here. So, with where yeah, I'm not seeing where the counterfactuals. Well, let me I, let me put up the fourth okay. bullet. Yeah, okay. Maybe that oh, sorry. Okay. So, I thought we were done with the bullet points. Okay, so. <laughs> so the the other thing that matters here is there's some kind of measure over the spin schedules. Okay. And, but this, where this measure is coming from, what, what makes it the right measure to use here is that it's the right measure to use for determining uh, uh, the truth of these likely counterfactuals. So it's, it's something that's, as it were, built into the semantics of counterfactuals that tells you uh, how to evaluate counterfactuals of this sort. It's the, the, the measure that you should be using uh, to to think about what it, what it means to say that almost all spin schedules will result in a smooth distribution. So it's that introdu- what introducing the counterfactuals does is it introduces a standard, uh, a sort of a standard measure, uh, which is the extra uh, ingredient you need to suck something probabilistic out of all of this deterministic stuff. But it introduces it, first of all, it introduces a particular one, whatever one is built into our semantics, uh, and it introduces it um, in a way that, uh, well, let me start again. It introduces a particular measure. It introduces a measure that is, is not, in some sense, a basic fact about the physical world. It's a basic fact about the truth conditions for these counterfactuals. So it sort of gives a, as it were, an origin for this measure as, as being the right measure. Um, but it does so without there having to be some uh, metaphysics that determines rightness and wrongness or naturalness and unnaturalness of measures. So, so that was the, this is the, 
going by the point of going by way of counterfactuals is to is to tell a story about this measure. Uh, otherwise, okay, but, but, it's a, it's a, it's. But so wait, wait, but let me. So 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 the the explanation for why actually the frequencies are such and such is gonna is gonna depend among other things on the semantics of counterfactuals. That is, that is, you might say, if you wanted to get yourself worried about that, mm. it's going to depend on a convention of a certain kind. It's going to... Well, I th- let's say, I would put it a different way. It's going to depend on counterfactual, counterfactual facts. Uh, now, a, a, quest, a, a natural question to raise is, well, is, a, there's lots of ways that, in some sense, counterfactual facts could have been. There's lots of different possible truth conditions for counterfactuals and we've chosen one above all the others now in doing that we didn't it's not so much that we made those facts true as that we made them special uh-huh. we made them the ones we were going to pay attention to when we explained uh, or in fact did a lot of other things that we do counterfactuals with so a, a good question to ask is what's so special about these facts you know what uh, and that that I mean and I think that's a, a big... But a, a let, let me put it more simply. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quoting you here from uh, two seconds ago. It's not going to be a fact about... The, it, it's, not, it's not a fact, I think, as you put it, about the world. It's a fact about the semantics of counterfactuals. And somebody... And if Listen. somebody says, that sounds weird... It sounds like the account of the frequencies actually being what they are ought to be exclusively in terms of facts about how the world is. If, if a person was worried about that, what would be the right thing to say to them? So, that's probably not a counterfactual question. <laughs> <laughs> Suppose, can I... Suppose someone were to say, well, it seems to me that, that uh, in our explanatory, when we explain things, we care a lot about robustness. Mm-hmm. So we care about a lot about uh, the fact not only that a process uh, did lead to that outcome, mm-hmm. but that if things had turned out slightly differently, it still would have led to that outcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it also turns out that, luckily, that the facts about robustness by way of counterfactuals are... Uh, you know, you might you might worry that that brings in all of these modal facts, which are supposed to be something, some kind of real fact about the universe on top of mm-hmm. the actual facts. Mm-hmm. But then, luckily, it turns out when we analyze counterfactual science, David Lewis has saved us if we ignore the uh, his belief in possible worlds. He's saved us from that. It turns out that the the counterfactual facts, the modal facts, are just a special kind of actual fact. So what's doing the explaining here is partly the, the actual facts that straightforwardly predict what was to be explained. Mm-hmm. And then also these other actual facts. Uh, so it's all done by actual facts. But still, there's a, there's a question to us. So this is now going to be a reframing of your question, David. Uh, well, why, why is it that we think those facts are so special, the special ones, the ones that the counterfactuals tell us matter so much here? Why do we pick out that particular subset of all the actual facts there are, the ones that base the counterfactuals? Uh, you know, why do we use, for example, this measure, 
would be one of the questions, well, one of the ways to ask that question more specifically. Um, and that, I think, is a, a good question. But I want to I want to separate it from the separate it from the question of why should something other than the actual facts be explanatory. Yeah, so I think it's it's just more actual facts, but it's a special subclass of actual facts, and it's reasonable to wonder why those should be so significant. Uh, let me just uh, maybe this is coming to the same point, but let me mm-hmm. say it a little differently. There was a kind of rhetorical strategy you used here, mm-hmm. um, which equated a bunch of words that have different connotations. So one is to say that in, in the preferred way you want to read this counterfactual, mm-hmm. um, the truth, in order to get truth conditions for it, you need a measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way you're thinking of reading it, I think that's absolutely true. But then you say things like, Therefore, the counterfactuals introduce a measure, or we will. There, uh, there's another thing you could you didn't say, which you see, you could say. Well, our judgments about counterfactuals are, as it were, diagnostic of a measure playing a certain role. But it's a very different claim to say somehow it's the counterfactuals or the semantics of counterfactuals that are, as it were, accounting for, or the way we think about counterfactuals, accounting for that measure. Right. In, in other words, I would right. think. Normally, people would say, yeah, I need a measure. Go ask the physicist what it ought to be, right? This would be more in line of David's claim, mm-hmm. saying that ultimately all this stuff is somehow physics, whereas if you, there's a way of saying when you say it's the counterfactuals that introduce the measure, mm-hmm. it's suggesting, no, no, there's something about, you know, imagining other possible worlds and, you know, uh, contrary to fact conditionals that's playing an essential role in determining the right measure, rather than simply saying, our reactions to counterfactuals are an indication that for one reason or another we've accepted the significance of a certain measure. And I think those just give you very different pictures about how much you want to be worrying about the semantics of counterfactuals in understanding what's going on. Well, it sounds, the way you put, the second way you put it sounds completely acceptable to me. But it, it raises the question, uh, naturally enough, well, what, what, why is this measure significant? Right. And that's the natural answer to, to that is is uh, it's significant because it's uh, uh, the measure that plays the role in the story of um, why there's this tendency well, to statistical smoothness. Let me make another suggestion. So it takes you straight back to the counterfactuals when uh, you answer that question. I mean, let, let me make one other suggestion as a kind of contrast case. And I want to point this out long ago. Of course, you've been using a measure all along. Your de- definition of microconstancy requires a measure. Right. Because you're de- it's defined in terms of proportionality. And what you're using there is what's called a natural measure. And the measure that is usually used to define the notion of typicality is also the natural measure. So you already have this measure floating around. Okay, you're already using it for various important conceptual purposes. Mm-hmm. If someone says, "Gee, that that very measure gives you also can play the role here," and I haven't said a word about counterfactuals, but it, that you know, if you plug it in, it will in fact, you know, do do a certain job in the counterfactual, you know, machinery if you decide to plug it in there in a certain way, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think it's not it's not it, it, the natural way the, the, the sort of the natural intuitive way to approach these things is just to come with the the usual measures of physical quantities in hand and say oh this process is micro constant this one isn't 
and then what you say applies. Yeah. But it's not, in fact, necessary to do that. So to set up the whole arbitrary functions, microconstancy approach to thinking about probability, it's not necessary to assume there's some privileged me measure. The, the, what the mathematics is telling you is if there exists a measure uh, relative to which A, the, um, the dynamics is microconstant, and B, the initial conditions are smoothly distributed, then blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that's not, that's not enough. For going beyond mathematics, we substitute for B uh, 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 a an actual tendency to smooth distribution in the world. So now what it looks like is, if there exists a method, a measure, uh, such that the dynamics are microconstant, and there's a tendency for uh, uh, the distribution of that variable according to that measure to be statistically smooth, then blah, 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 blah. So there's, it's, it's purely conditional, and the only thing that's nailing it down is the tendency to smoothness. So micro, what matters is micro... To put it another way, what matters is the only kind of microconstancy that is interesting is microconstancy relative to uh, variables, when I, I, I mean random variables, so think of the measure as being built in, um, relative to variables that have a tendency to smoothness. So it, it's the tendency to smoothness that, that makes one measure seem like the, the right measure to use, or, or one family of measures really, to seem like the right measure to use for spin speeds, say. And then... Just a, just a, a completely autobiographical or, or eurobiographical question. Um, if you were worried about, and I know you are worried about, if you were worried about biology or you were worried about the special sciences mm -hmm. and the uses of probabilities there, um, the notion of a natural measure, which mm -hmm. is actually one that comes up just in defining the dynamics in physics, may not mm -hmm. in any obvious way. I, you know, measures over you know, the space of possible mutations of <laughs> genes. Right, mm -hmm. there's no dynamics there that you can appeal to and say, "Look, we're already using a measure." Blah 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 blah. Then I would understand. A, a, a con it may be that the concern you just gave is more, or or the the inter set of interconnections you just gave are more compelling in those fields, and those might be the fields you were more worried about. Mm -hmm. um, when you're looking at the physics, and there really are kind of measures that are already built in, just when you specify the laws of nature in a certain way, they're picked out as special. Yeah. Um, it, it just looks a little different. Is it, so this is just all biographically. I mean, were you more thinking of the special science cases when you were worried about this, or no, not not particularly. Okay. Um, because I, it's there's a let, let, let's say that physics physics supplies a measure and says this is the measure we all use in physics. It still seems reasonable to ask, well, but. Uh, uh, is smoothness relative to that measure, is that something there's a tendency to get in the world or not? Yeah. And I don't think physicists' okay. use of that, the measure, presupposes that there is such a tendency. And it's going to be those, those no, as that happens, I think we think the answer is yes, and there's a kind of interesting answer to why. But we think there are these certain measures with respect, I mean, normally we don't think about it explicitly, of course, but once you become philosophically sophisticated, you think there are certain measures or certain, certain ways of quantifying physical, physical things uh, relative to which there is a tendency to smoothness. And those are going to be the measures, the quantifications with respect to which microconstancy is interesting. M Michael, let me, let me ask, or we're probably holding you up. Too much. Um, well, I've um, sort of gotten 
close to the end here, so I think it's question Okay. Is this a correct way to reconstruct? Is this a correct way to reconstruct what your the, the strategy you're suggesting? Um, you say so. So where we left off a few minutes ago, when I was last mm -hmm. asking questions, was okay. We're not talking about probability anymore. We're talking about tendency to smoothness. Mm -hmm. But what's that? Okay, isn't that something we're just going to have to insert in the same way? And your answer was no. I have a trick. Here's the trick. Okay. Um, <laughs> the trick is the trick is note the tendency is a dispositional term. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is, it's about counterfactuals. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're going to get, so, um, uh, so it turns out that the relevant measure is already implicit in the way we use the word tendency, okay, in the correct counterfactual analysis of the semantics of the word tendency, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the, so, so that we don't have to add anything. It's 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 implicit in the meaning of the word tendency that uh, properly analyzed in terms of counterfactuals that there is this tendency to smoothness. Mm -hmm. Is that is that a uh, is that a reasonable way to to summarize what you said or 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 it's not that I'm laying a trap here. Okay. Exactly. Another way to put it is these are these are just what tendencies are. Right. Right. They're these kind of actual. That's things. right. Right. And, that's and the counterfactuals, kind of of course, that was kind of somebody says, "Where did the word measure? Where, where, where did the measure come from?" You say, "We're trying to prove that things have a tendency to do such and such." There is a measure implicit in the word tendency. Right. Or well, there's a measure implicit in the facts about tendencies. Uh, uh, okay, that's good. Make the distinction facts. between those two things, because that's what that's what the worry is going to be about. If my no, first way of putting it was right, there's yeah. just a measure implicit, you know, sort of analytically in the word tendency. Then, then it sounds like we're explaining frequencies in part in terms of facts about semantics, and that might worry somebody. But I mean, you, you wanted to, so you wanted to resist it. To pick out certain facts about the world, the tendencies, and those are explanatory. And I think, and I think there's a there's a worry in what you're saying, but I sort of resisting the that way is, you're putting that, it. That is, suppose somebody says, I want to explain why the frequencies are such and such, not why they tend to be such and such. Blah blah blah. I mm. want to explain why they are such and such. Yeah. And then, and then the dialectic goes. Well, it's because, it's because the 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 uh, uh, the uh, functions are smooth. Okay. And you say, and guy says, well, where did that come from? Is that an additional postulate? And you say, no, no, no. It's not a postulate about the world. What I mean is, they tend to be smooth. And you say, but that sounds like, a, the other guy says, that sounds like a postulate about the world, too. And then you say, ah, but here's where my trick comes in, okay? It turns out that the, that the measure you need is, is implicit in the semantics of the word tendency. And then we're, and then we're home. But then somebody says, uh, I, I feel like I've been tricked. Okay, <laughs> that the, 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 something goofy is going on. Because you're, yeah. what you're trying to do is 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 
to have me say that it's the, the semantics that's doing the explaining. Uh, or, or, and what well, I'm saying okay, is yeah, okay. the semantics is picking yeah. out the facts which that are well, doing the explaining. Uh, so I don't understand the latter way of And it partly, it's partly picking them out using a measure. Uh, uh-huh. And that is how the measure got in there, but it's wrong to think of that measure itself as, as, as sort of a, a thing that's uh-huh. pushing stuff around. Uh-huh. The stuff that's... It's rather something that does a semantic job in determining the meaning of tendency. Well, and picking out what, what facts in the world make it the case that there are such tendencies. Mm. So the tendency... Okay, I have to... I, have to, I, I'm, I'm, the I feel queasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that... But I, I mean, I want to respect your queasiness and right. sort of right. suggest you a different way of putting it. Why... So, so once you fix this measure, then it's going to be uh, sort of certain, as it were, properties of the pre-spin state and the laws. But let's say to pr- focus on the pre-spin state right. in particular that make the counterfactual true. But you could have fixed a different measure, and then that would be different properties of the pre-spin state mm-hmm. that made it true. Or to put it a different way, with a different measure, it would be different properties of the pre-spin state that would be the ultimate real-world basis for the tendency. So there's two ways you could have done things, and one way these properties would have been what made it the case there was a tendency and therefore explained everything, and the other way it would have been these things. So I think there is a really good question of why these are the properties that are explained and not these ones. We're, we're talking about worlds with the same frequencies. Yeah. Okay, but but the, um, so so keep everything the same. So keep everything and everything about the actual physical facts the same. And change the semantics of counterfactuals. Then right. what what the actual but have to have a semantics where ultimately the only input to counterfactuals is facts about the actual world. So all modal talk is just a way of coming back to facts about the actual world. Plus these measures, plus these, plus these. You but know, that's metrics. just that saying plus the semantics, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. The yes, semantics yes, yes. of every word. Fair enough. Plays Fair enough. Picking that's out what that word refers right. to. That's right. That's right. So the me- but the measure here really is doing something pretty different from what it's doing in a uh, 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 in these other cases. It really is. It's it's picking out certain aspects of the pre-spin state or whatever is the, the ones that are really explanatorily relevant because that's where the tendency lies. They're there, plus, and, and of course, in the laws of nature. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm completely... <laughs> I, I'm just really lost in tendency. This is, the word tendency is one that I, I have no very clear uh, uh, understanding of. So let me just ask some very... So one sense in which people talk about the tendencies is... The truth conditions for that, if we want to talk about semantics, are tied to actual frequencies, right? So if I say, you know, David has a tendency to order escargot when he goes out to eat, and someone says, that's odd, I've never in in my entire life seen David order escargot, and I say, yeah, yeah, well, actually, of course, he never has, but he has the tendency to. (laughs) <laughs> you might be really puzzled by what the hell you're talking about. Now, you, you, you know, the, you, I, could, I could fill out a kind of strange story, but I wouldn't use the word tendency there. I might say, you know, here's an amazing fact. David really has a deep-seated psychological disposition to order escargot. It turns out, however, 
just entirely by accident, every time he goes into a restaurant where there's escargot on the, on, on the menu, and as it were, if things went normally in his brain, he would say, please, large order of escargot, there's a cosmic ray. You know, we happen to be in a world where a cosmic ray, entirely by accident, you know, goes in and, and has hit his synapses and prevented him from this realization and, and, and made the word hamburger come out of his mouth. Okay. Um, now, I'm not sure I would even say in that case that he has a tendency to order escargot. I might say, oddly enough, you know, he had a disposition to that was that was systematically but accidentally thwarted by accidental, right? Oh, well, I'm not sure. Well in terms of dispositions with that. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out. I'm just, because I, it, it's the word, I don't use the word tendency much, so I haven't thought <laughs> in my philosophical work. I use it in everyday life, right? But when I use it in everyday life, it's always tied to frequencies, right? And no, if it's tied to frequencies, no, then of course... That is, then, really. Oh, I think... I, 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 sure. I mean, I think, well... well it's, it's, it's a lot of biography. Okay. And when I say, this has a tendency to do that, I sort of mean, lots of times, this does that. And if someone were to say, no, no, this thing has a tendency should, to do that, but it never does it, right? Yeah, so maybe I, we should, you'd be puzzled. Maybe we should talk about dispositions then. Um, but that, maybe that would help. Maybe, maybe you're right, the tendency is a little bit too closely tied to frequencies, and dispositions would be better. Um, now, you know, from, from my point of view, if I then, if, so let me take the dispositional case. I say, this is a disposition to do that, but in fact it never does it. That also sounds a little odd, but, you know, the answer I would give would come back to typicality. Would we say, look, for typical initial conditions, it would do this. It, it turns out, for some you know odd accidental reason, the actual initial conditions have not been typical, and it hasn't done it. But the fact that for typical initial conditions it does it, that's a fact mm -hmm. that's based in the volume of phase space taken up by initial conditions that lead to this. Well, I mean, I think this, this story is going to lead back to to that story, that the way we, then that's how is it that we assess, you know, it's a, as, a, as I was saying before, it's right. not as if we can go through every, every possible world individually and see what would happen there. So how is it that we even know that, right. that things are going to come out the way they do? I think it's by the kind of reasoning that you just, Good. That you okay. just went through. So this is supposed to be a, a story about why your story right. uh, is an attractive one. Right. So this, this, you could read this as a story of how to, to, to take the notion of typicality and also use it as, as a basis for other things, like claims about dispositions or claims about counterfactuals, to have a slot that story in other locations in our and mental e and economy. And to show That's people who claim, not to, who, who claim not to understand what typicality means or to have no place in their heart for typicality, but all <laughs> along they've seen typicality enthusiasm. Maybe this is a nice finale for There is a way in which it seems to me you're trying to satisfy um, questions such as would occur to both me and Tim at the same time, and, and I don't understand how it's going to work simultaneously. That is, <laughs> that is the worry was, there was a worry on my part. Yeah. Um, um, what, what sort of fundamental claims about the way the world is do we need to start with? Mm -hmm. in order to be in a position to satisfactorily understand frequencies of, of how things uh, come out, okay? And, and basically, Tim and I had 
different numbers of things that, that we, you know, that Tim was trying to present some view on which if you understand the dynamics in the right way, that's all you need. And, and, that, what, and that was a way of reading what Boltzmann was doing and what Maxwell was doing, um, um, that they understood the dynamics in the right way and they didn't see a need for any further what we've been calling inputs in this mm-hmm. conversation. Right. And I said, I just don't see, I, I don't see how that works. What, if, you know, what about the guy who says, well, how come these weren't the distribution of, uh, of initial conditions and so on and so forth? And, uh, 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 and, and isn't it an additional fact about the way the world is that's part of our scientific understanding of it that the initial, that, that the distribution wasn't like that, okay? Um, so that's what there was an argument about. Now, when you're facing, when you're facing towards me, okay, <laughs> you seem to be saying, you seem to be saying, I understand the need for an additional input, but I got a way of getting it by magic, okay? Or I've got, I've got a way of seeing that it was implicit in what you were already saying or, or something like that, okay? Um, Whereas when you're facing towards Tim, it sounds like you're saying, it sounds like you're agreeing with a picture of what you're doing as um, starting off in the same place, denying that there's a need for further input, but using these notions of typicality to produce an analysis of stuff like tendency and, and so on and so forth. So you're offering the two of us very different things. Um, um, and I, 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 I and, and it's not clear how you could offer them both at the same time. That is, it's um, an election. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's an election. You haven't attention to Romney. I never really like the analogy, but <laughs> um, so I thought I thought that you. you Tim, you agree that needs to be an additional input, but typicality is sufficient? No, I don't no, think Tim agrees. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, I, I mean, additional so I am input right. is a, okay. this was a, the worry about inputs was one that was okay, also okay. You know, on my radar screen that I was right. also trying to so, track. Right. So that makes me think that I'm more of a, so, so the first step is more a facing this direction kind of step. Yes, right. there has to be an additional input, and the additional input... But I've got some back. magic about, you know, but I've got a way to make the additional input appear appear, how shall we say, peculiarly innocent, unexpectedly innocent. No, or, it's, or well, it's in, a, in one sense, it's, its matter is innocent. Right. Uh, its form is, is um, raises more of a question. Uh-huh. So the matter of the additional input is right. just actual facts about the world. Right, right. And they're just frequencies and the deterministic laws, so we're all okay with those. But the, the sense in which there's still a lingering sense of mystery is, is you ask, well, why these particular right. things? I mean, I was, let, let, let me put it this way, right? So here's the real pedestrian position that I've had, okay? Um, there needs to be additional input, and, and presumably the form of that input is additional laws of nature, okay? Additional fundamental laws of nature, stipulating the, the distribution, so on and so forth, okay? And Tim's position was, if you read Maxwell and Boltzmann carefully, 
they thought that that um, that the explanation had come to a satisfactory end without saying anything about these additional inputs. And I infer from there that smart guys think that you don't need any additional input, and I agree with them, or or something like that. Um, right. Or, or or another way to put it is that what's doing the explanatory work in the end is nothing more than a, a, a judgment about this this sort of coarse grain judgment about large and small right. parts of phase right. space. Right. And that I think of as physical. Right. If right. you want to say it's physical, it's just a physical well, fact. Large, large and small by a certain measure, you know, by, by yeah. a measure which the wise guy could still come and ask right. about why that measure. Right, right. right. But, okay. but, you know, Good. that's what's doing so that, so that, so that's that was the So that was the dialectical situation that we've been more or less stalled in for, <laughs> for a semester. Now, it sounded like you were it, it sounded when you were facing me, okay, yeah. as if you were saying, David, I completely, I see where you're coming from. There needs to be additional input, but I've got a way of getting it sort of by magic or for free rather than by stipulating an additional law of nature. Okay. If magic and, is and not stipulating a law I've got a way of doing it without stipulating an additional law of nature. Um, and to Tim, you seem to be at least acquiescing in a description of the project as merely a way of applying the intuition that you don't need any additional input to a to to an analysis of the way we use words like typicality and so on and so forth. Now those do seem like two positions that it's hard to see how you could hold at the same time. So I'm not I'm not so there there is an additional input. So okay. insofar as it seems like I was saying there wasn't. Right, right. I wasn't. Okay. This is the additional input. Right, right, right. Um, but it's not it's not probabilistic. Right. And there's no extra laws. Right. I understand. That's where right. the, the magic comes in. But there may be queasing. And what, but right. another thing, <laughs> the judging, when we judge that, that, when we think about this input, I think it's quite natural to think in terms of typicality. Mm -hmm. And there's an mm -hmm. explanation of why typicality thinking is both natural and also why we no, but think you, about it you're, using you're the measure. You're not using typicality to describe the same train no, no, of thought. That's as right. Image. That's right. Okay. Not exactly okay. the same train of thought. Okay. Okay. Right. And there's okay. even I mean I, I didn't point it out at the time, so there's even just grammatical differences. So in my usage, it doesn't make sense to say the initial conditions are typical. Uh, right. It only makes sense to say certain behaviors are typical and then the claim is if they are if they turn out to be, then your explanatory task is over. And this is, you know, well, whether, whether it was going to be. I was just trying to say typical a lot in that hope. There is, I think, it follows from stuff you haven't so much emphasized in the recent in the present discussion, but in terms of the actual structure of the mathematics and microconstancy, the stuff that lies behind the explanation, the dynamical explanation. There is something which is perhaps worth mentioning, and I don't think it's. I don't know if it's come across. So if you think about the space of, let me, the space of, um, let's not go back to spin schedules. Are they going to be used? Uh, just to, uh, let this here be 
the space of a initial speed configurations for the hundred spins. Mm. Now, it is the case that for most points in here, most points in here are good in the sense that they lead to the right frequencies and the right statistical behavior, proper independence, all kinds of tests would be asked. Most points in here are good. But for, because of the microconstancy, the situation is much better. That We have a much more, more robust, much stronger sense of most than we normally would. For any point in here, if you fatten it a little bit by an appropriate amount, most points locally are good. So you really have a really strong sense of most for the statement that most points are good. Now, for most people, that would be the more, more convincing than any statement about counterfactuals. But I think it's, it's convincing because of counterfactual stuff whirring in the back of the head. No, I don't know about that. I mean, the, the sense of, of, of most here is so really strong. I, I suddenly agree with that, yeah. So right, because well, the question so the, the, is, this, this is what, what you just guys just did at the very end there is the, the point. I think Shelley's going to agree, or at least I would agree, that it's this kind of fact that makes you confident about the counterfactual. Yes. But what Shelley wants to say is, look, it's explanatory feature you can talk about independently of all of that. And right? that, I, that I don't agree with. Okay. So I think following down the, the paths of explanation, it turns out that counterfactuals are unavoidable. And this is how they get into the picture. And when we, when we look at a, a picture like that, operating in the back of our heads is a, is a presumption of a, a... When you see how, how strong the, um, the sense of most is, you see that the kind of unsmoothness that would be required to, um, to create problems is in, ex, so extreme that even just a little bit of a tendency to smoothness will be enough to sort of have everything come out okay, have the frequencies come out okay. Uh, and so uh, it's, that, it's that thinking, in, that it's, the thinking goes by way of tendencies when we interpret the importance of more versus less uh, uh, here. Wait, everyone is looking very confused. Yeah, I, I don't see, we're back there. I, I don't understand what the tendency work is. I mean, to, to, to take, to, let me just make Shelley's point. So Shelley's point was, was that there's one sense of typicality in which to say that a certain outcome, like a certain 50, nearly 50% outcome mm -hmm. for the spins is typical, is just to say that if I look at the, the set of states that lead to that outcome and the set of states that don't, Okay, the set of states that don't is very, very small. Now, with respect to a measure that we need to talk about its status, um, Shelley's saying, well, it's even better because of all of the, because of the dynamics, what you're pointing out, the mixing stuff, which is that not only is the bad set small, but it's, you know, just highly, highly scattered, right? It doesn't small up everywhere. everywhere. Right. Small everywhere. Right. Okay, and that makes it even better. Right? It's good that it's small. It's even better it's than a very small strong scattering. sense in the word. It's really, really small. Well, the scattering doesn't make it any small. No, but it's a feeling it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Now, um, one thing, can, when you go back to Templeton, you can say one thing we agreed on is that the set is really, really, really right. small. Now, if, if I'm understanding when you talk about the tendency to smoothness, mm. What what you want to say? What 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 Shelley was calling the good set. You want to call these guys smooth. Is that right? 
Mm-hmm. And these guys, the bad, what he's calling the bad set, you want to call non-smooth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what that means. That that's the except if you characterize it as they're not smooth because they lead to bad statistics, right? But I'm not sure what that has to do with smoothness. They're just they're, the the sense in which they're the bad set that Shelley means. They're bad because they lead to bad actual frequencies. Right? They, they lead to the different sets of, of actual frequencies. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the, either the word smoothness or tendency to smoothness is, is buying us that's more or different than saying the bad set is small and scattered. Those sound like different claims. Right. So, no, so let me, I mean, there's no need to put it in terms of smoothness. Smoothness is just, it's just what, what when you graph yeah. all of you, this is the point of phase space that corresponds to lots and lots and lots of initial conditions but if you grapple the initial conditions separately you get a kind of a smooth looking graph but the, I'll just call them bad and good so there's a, a, tenden, a tendency uh, uh, to goodness I guess um, let me see what's the right way to think about it here um Well, then let me interrupt just for a second. See, the way I put it, I would say, look, it's because overwhelmingly most in the appropriate sense are good that you don't need to talk about a tendency in addition to that. Yeah. It's the overwhelmingness, mostness, yeah. as it were, that explains the tendency rather than the other way around. Oh, but I, okay, but then, so I'm with you there. The, the oh, overwhelmingly most... to my side. Now. The overwhelmingly... <laughs> 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 so the more than in that picture when you talk about tendencies and dispositions, because that's what I was... Right, right. Yeah. right. Anything beyond that picture. Right, right. Is, 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 right. I mean, that, that well, is sometimes what is, that's well, what's been in dispute that? between well, Tim and I. Is is you, you draw the picture of the possible initial conditions? Mm-hmm. It has the form that that uh, the Shelley and Finn yeah. have just been describing, and then there is a question: Do we need to add something along the lines of? And by the way, forget about the bad states, or do we not? So okay. yes. So is that an additional postulate about the way the world is? <coughs> okay. And there is a there is a there is a let me just try to put things crisply just mm-hmm. just I mean it was it's really you know I, I think it was it was very good fortune your being the last um, um, uh, lecture in this class because it's focused a lot of uh, uh, a lot of what we've been um, trying to get straight with each other um, um, look there is and let's talk of course modulo the 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 nature of the logical relations between a statement like it's probable that X and X. We need some analysis of probability in order to uh, in order to get that straight. But the thought was, I, I guess the thought on my part is modulo that issue, and that's an issue that I think can be addressed successfully by certain kinds of Humean analyses of, of probability and so on and so forth. Modulo that that issue. The, the place I was coming from was, gee, it's perfectly clear what a satisfactory explanation is. It's, a, it's, it's something that goes by way of logical deduction from, uh, uh, from fundamental laws of nature 
um, to that, that is the explanation of a law-like tendency is something that goes from fundamental laws of nature by logical deduction to the explanandum. Okay, and Tim had a more liberal intuition about it. Okay, that there are places well short of that mm-hmm. that it can stop. Okay. Um, um, that, in a nutshell, does that sound right? Was was the was the character of the? I, I have a very simple-minded, straightforward, not context-dependent, not the, you know, blah 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 account of what it is to have explained to have explained, say, a law-like tendency of ice to melt. Okay, so this you is start with the fundamental laws. You you have purely logical deduction and modulo the question of the relation between it's probable that x and x, you get x. Okay, um, um, Tim says no explanation is more complicated than that. You want to know what an explanation is? You got to look at the places where physicists feel content to stop, you know, beating their heads against the wall and and uh, and so on and so forth. Um, um, and your position in some—it sounds like you you think of yourself as positioned in some intermediate space between those two. So I think there's the I'm I'm with you in the sense of additional. Say that to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not a, the, the input is not is not is not lost. <laughs> Let me go back to this area. Right. So there's a the fact that overwhelmingly many of these points are let's call it smooth is uh, uh, an important part of the fact that uh, is an important part of our reason for thinking there's a tendency to smoothness. But the, the total factual base of the tendency to smoothness uh, is not all in the square. Uh, it's also in the, the history of the square uh, in these pre-spin states. Okay, so these are, the, these are the actual spins. Then there's a, uh, the, the way things were um, uh, just before the spins were supposedly going to happen. And um, in here, uh, further facts, and precisely which facts is determined by the whole story about counterfactuals and so on, which make it the case, uh, or part of what makes it the case, that uh, there is this tendency. Okay, so there's, there is something additional. There's an additional input. It's not just this picture plus a standard for typicality. Um, it's, a, it's a causal story, in effect. You're looking at where the spins came from. That's going but to be important. At the end of the day, you're going to, the best you're going to ever have with that causal story is a picture as right. good as the one you had on the right. So what did you really gain by that? You gain in terms of an understanding what was going on. Well, the, okay, so the, on this side, you have, you have just actual facts without any characterization in terms of tendencies. On this side, you have not only the, the measure theoretic facts, but you have the, the tendency as well. So you've gone... The idea is to go from facts that make no mention of tendencies except the laws of nature, which are, of course, important, to facts about tendencies. Why are you, why is, on, do you say on that side you have facts about tendencies? Well, these are the, the tendencies are about these initial conditions. That's why I'm pointing to the square. Uh, why these initial conditions? There's also initial conditions there on the other side. So if you're going to, if you're going to, and they may have, 
So to, to get the to get the tendency for to get about a half red, you need a, a tendency to smoothness here. Okay, and you can get that tendency without having a tendency here. That doesn't mean there aren't tendencies here. It just means you don't need the tendencies here to get the tendencies here. So the, the point is to show that there is a bottoming out of these counterfactuals in non-counterfactual facts. But I, I didn't mean—I didn't mean to tell the whole story again. I was just trying to illustrate the the, um, the geography of the of the position. So there's there is an additional additional input that goes back in time, slightly before the uh, the um, the values you're, you're, uh, that determine whether you have a smooth distribution or not. Okay, so there is something additional. It's not it's not lawful, but thanks to the thanks to uh, the the metaphysics of the world we live in, or the metaphysics we impose on the world we live in, I'm not but sure which so, it is. So Michael, uh, these things crisply, constitute ten, ten very crisply. The the additional huh? thing is not about laws of nature, but blank fill in the blank. Got to be five words or less. <laughs> <laughs> Tendencies, look, dispositions, comma, based in laws slash. <laughs> <laughs> based in fundamental laws and matters of actual fact. Okay. So it's not right. like right. So it's not like Tim because it's. Something, something additional here, uh-huh. but uh-huh. it's not some metaphysically special additional right. thing. It's just right. more of the same kind of stuff, but positioned strategically so as to as to make certain counterfactuals true, and therefore constitute a tendency. Should Should I call on people? Yeah. 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 Okay. Z. Um, I'm just. So this might just be this might this just be a really small thing. I'm just wondering about smoothness because I thought I had it and then you said some things and maybe oh. um, So is smoothness just going to be characterized by the, the outcomes of um, initial conditions? Specifically, I was thinking that... Sorry, wait, wait, you mean that by, um, the outcomes that are caused by initial conditions? Yeah, or the, 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 the frequencies that will result from a certain, a certain setup. Or the, um, um, so the, the thing I was thinking was that you were talking about the good set and you were alternating between calling it good and smooth. Right. And then I was thinking that, would you think that if I had the, um, if I had the Wheel of Fortune, I just sort of cherry-picked a bunch of very specific uh, velocities, but I just happened to, but then I decided to pick exactly 50% of the black ones and 50% red ones, would that be smooth? I mean, if I really like, if it was sort of picked in a very specific Oh well, it depends how it was picked. I mean, so so. Is there a way I can, I can pick such that it wouldn't be smooth but still be fifty? Just use the yeah. two slots. Yeah, that. All right, because then I was thinking, um, you know, that would look like. I mean, that sounds at least if you just think that frequencies is for the you know, sort of out, um, but that's supposed to matter about whether or not you're in the in the good set, and that's going to be. So you might define good as any set that gives you 50-50, and that would be slightly, that would smooth smoothness gives you 50-50, but it's not necessary for getting 50-50. Yeah. So my you would also like appropriate independence tests and all that stuff passed too, built into the goodness. Right. And not that, just 50-50. And that would then so what you need is something more than just something smoothness. More. Something more than just smoothness to get that. So smoothness yeah. is really standing in for. But it is going to be true that that. that would, 
Most points are really good. That's right. Yeah. So the reason to focus on smoothness is because in these cases it's smoothness. Let's take we'll define goodness as getting 50-50. It's there's a tendency to smoothness, um, but there's no greater tendency to goodness. That is to say, insofar as, as there's a tendency to goodness, it's because there's a tendency to smoothness. Is that okay? So, I don't know. I, I think I'm just a bit confused about how statistical mechanic probability is going to come out of this, given that there's only one actual initial condition. We did, you, it, there was just the start of the universe. Yeah, I think that there's no, there's no pre, pre initial condition state of and things like that. Right, so this isn't going to give you a tendency for the initial, the ultimate initial conditions to be anything in particular. So I think the way to apply this thinking to statistical mechanics is instead um, to think of the initial conditions as being the initial conditions of some particular process you're thinking about. You take the ice cube out of the refrigerator and drop it in the drink. It's the initial conditions uh, start when you pull the ice cube out. But I didn't so think it's a really then, yeah, point. Then what's the structure of the of the of, of the correct scientific account of the fact that the world as a whole is one of those worlds in which ice cubes typically melt and uh, so on? Well, that depends on exactly what I think on exactly what fact you're asking for the explanation of. So if it's just a if it's just the fact that this huge range of thermodynamic processes behave entropically, then right. it's that it's like uh, it's analogous to the question why why in casinos all over the US um, roulette wheels each day the roulette wheel gives about 50% red and 50% black or slightly less. No, 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 but I don't understand. If I so, want to so, so explain why if I want to explain why this dropped, yeah. okay I have several options, some of which are more practical and illustrative than others, but it, it, a logical consistency among them is a really important feature of how we approach the world. I could just refer to conditions in this room, okay, you know, a minute before I dropped it, or I could refer to the, or, or I could refer to the condition of the universe as a whole a minute before I dropped it, solve the equations of motion of the universe as a whole, and find that among many other features, two seconds from now, this thing is on the table. Okay, we want to have all those options. You know, if if for some reason one or another of those options is unavailable, that's going to make us feel funny. Okay, so if so, so if you say so, you mean unavailable in, in principle? In in some kind of principled way, but 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 it sounds like you are saying it's unavailable in some kind of that is. Well, so I I want to have I want to have an explanation, a deterministic explanation of why this thing dropped. Okay, good. Now I want to have uh, uh, I want to have you know an account of of well maybe uh, I don't want to say this without making it immediately contentious. So there is a temptation to say why this ice cube will probably melt or or something like that, um, or why you know or, well. Why the why the why the total set of ice cubes that have been placed in warm rooms mostly melted? Okay, mm -hmm. good. Of course, I can refer just to the initial conditions of that set of ice cubes, mm -hmm. but I want to be able to expand it, you know, a, as far as I want, up to and including the universe as a whole and the totality of its history in the same way. Mm -hmm. But if you're offering us a kind of explanation which is in principle 
limited to things that we can consider as a subsystem mm-hmm. of the world. It's not going to accommodate that that request. So I, th- I think that's right. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not sure I see that that's a... I mean, it may be a... No, that's a worry. It's a, it's a disappointment. It would uh-huh. be nice... I mean, clearly, one thing that would be nice is what but your, your system offers. Him and I both got him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's important. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. in the way you said it from the beginning of the paper, you say, well, there's going to be a little bit of frequentism in mm-hmm. this story. Right? It's holding up a corner of the edifice, right. the whole edifice. Right? Right. Um, and insofar as that's true, the frequentism depends upon you know, an ensemble. And insofar as that's true, and that says, but what if I want to kind of apply this to the entire universe? Right where the ensemble has, a, has only one element. Right, right. Then, then I think it is a natural response to say, well, it just ain't going to work there anymore. Right. right? This, this has a more constricted range of application. But this kind of analysis... But I, think, I, overwhelmingly I, think, most I, I think it's fair to say that both Tim and I felt yeah. pressure to drive us to the places where we ended oh, up. I see from the insistence on taking questions of the whole universe seriously. I see that. And it's true that you both both of you can deal with this question of thinking right. about the initial conditions of right. the universe, and, right. and I can't. So right. this is a, also a good thing, because the course was both on statistical explanation in general, right. and then particularly <laughs> with regard to cosmology, right. so it's right. interesting to end up right. with a case where you right. have the position that, look, right. yeah. there's a bunch of statistical practice. Right. You know, even if we were to accept to say there's a bunch of statistical mm. practice, but once you understand it, you'll see, yeah, if you're doing cosmology, right. you're in a different ballgame, right? right? If right. there's going to be something like statistical explanation right. there, it's going to have to be of some fundamentally different kind of form. Now, you might react to that by saying, so you should stop looking for it in cosmological right. contexts, right? Or you might respond to it by saying, I want a different gadget that doesn't have that limitation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I mean, one, one way to take this is a, it's a sort of diagnosis of why people think, well, of course, the explanation for why ice cubes melt is a great explanation, but that I'm not so sure that you can really explain why the initial conditions of the universe were the mm-hmm. entropic rather than something weird. Mm-hmm. And the, the ex- maybe the explanation for why people feel that way is because our, our, our explanatory norms or our psychology of explanation does demand a little bit of prehistory to get these statistical explanations going in a... I mean, that, that's certainly that fair enough as a diagnosis of how people ordinarily would respond to these things, but there is good, but it's it's a feature of both Tim's view and mine that our aspirations are 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 larger than that. Um, now it may be that it's that it, it would be interesting for there to be a, a compelling argument that it's somehow inappropriate for the aspirations of statistical analysis to be that large. Um, I, I don't know. That is, that is, or, or rather, the, the dialectical situation seems like this. Either there's an argument why it's inappropriate for, for those aspirations to be that large, or if you've got something that can take care of larger aspirations plus everything else, why not go with that? I, I mean, I think if it's... You know, in a way, I'm prepared to say, okay, this is a, a, 
a drawback right. to this way of doing right. it. Right. But this is actually the way we do do it, I think. Right. Right. So we're just right. stuck with this right. this, this convention right. for explaining. Right. If we were, if we were, if we thought about explanation right. a different way, we would right. have more explanation. Right. Good. 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 The connection with the most famous. I want a different comment in a different direction. Whoops. And then you know, then we've got to let my line behind the the mechanism for generation of. 50-50 probabilities here is this microcontext. But the most famous, well, at least for this course, the most, this course spent a lot of time talking about equilibrium and approach to equilibrium. And probably the most famous probability distribution in physics is the Maxwellian for a gas in equilibrium. And one remark is, I'm remarking out is that as far as the explanation of why, when you have that, why you have that probability distribution, or a gas in equilibrium, it's not of this character at all. It doesn't, it, it, the mechanism isn't any micro-constancy or anything like that. In fact, it's, it's, the dynamical role is, is almost minimal there. It simply has to do with the fact that you're dealing with a large system and for a large, a large system of particles in a box with a fixed energy, the overall majority of phase points are such that the empirical distribution of the velocities is Maxwellian. And that was Boltzmann's realization. He first gave a dynamical explanation of that through Boltzmann's equation, then realized there's a much more general, more robust, more illuminating explanation by taking into account the fact that you're dealing with a really big system. And that explanation has nothing to do with microconstancy. That's true that that explanation doesn't, but there are there is a way to think about what's going on in the gas that I think does have to do with microconstancy. So if you go back to the more the earlier approaches, we have particles bouncing off one another and so on, and you see that bouncing is creating a kind of a randomization. Then you then you can build it in. But that was Boltzmann equation kind of analysis. But then he realized that he had a much more a much more illuminating analysis, which doesn't appeal to that kind of mixing stuff. Even though the other I, I, I don't find it as illuminating. I mean, it has, it's beautiful in a certain way. I mean, it's quite, it's beautiful, it's simple, you're looking it's for a cause grand, of some kind. but I find it actually less, less satisfying than thinking about it the way that Boltzmann and, in fact, originally Maxwell did. originally did, yeah. I hope that that, I mean, that, <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to consult. I, I, I too much invested to have my intu explanatory intuitions count for much, but, um, there's an interesting, there's some interesting history and sociology of science issues here, I think, about why people ended up converging on that as the accepted story. Well, uh, I don't know if there is an accepted story, by the way. These issues are still would controversial, be and they're partly yeah. controversial because co probability itself is controversial. Well, it seems like the okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, do we have time? Yeah, do we have time? Um, and this may be sort of relevant thing we've been talking about a bit before, but what sort of story would you want to tell for why the count of actuals we have pick out the actual facts rather than the hypothesis facts? I don't think we do have time. <laughs> 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 In a gesture of like sort of creepy thoughtfulness, is that one of the stories you tell there might be able to get you something like um, a measure of initial states or probably distribution or something like that in there as well, depending on what kind. I mean, it will have a different aspect, but it can make the account vague and more unified. 
it'll be interesting to hear more about what you have in mind. Because what so what I have in mind, I think, is an interesting story, but it's not interesting in that way. Uh, it would just be a story about the kind of world we actually live in, and therefore it would hang on yeah, the actu- actual initial conditions of everything. It, it should definitely still hang on at the end of the day. Yeah. Maybe we should well, play Okay, yeah. Thank you, Michael. Oh, thank you. I wish I'd been able to get to more of these classes. It was sort of too bad the timing worked out the way it did, but maybe I got, did I just, I just distracted, but. <laughs> Look, by the way, just because, uh, who's, who's actually taking this course? <laughs>